And we can see this morning as we turn to our scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, if you're using a Bible that's provided, that's page 961 towards the back of your Bible, we are going to continue looking at the hope of the gospel. How do we consistently live in the hope of the gospel? That's the question we've been trying to tackle in 1 Corinthians 15. And as we have talked about, the assuring truth of the gospel is that the hope, the message of the good news of the gospel, it doesn't lie within ourselves. At first, that may seem like bad news because if it doesn't lie within ourselves, we like to kind of have a sense of control But the fact that the good news of the gospel has nothing to do with us, it doesn't come from any hope within ourselves, it's actually the best news that we could ever hear. As we saw a couple weeks ago in verses 1 to 11, what is the first reality of the hope of the gospel that we looked at? That the hope of the gospel, it's completely rooted in Christ. No one else, nothing else. Completely rooted in Christ. And then we saw, secondly, over the past two weeks, that we have to be aware of reality number two, that the hope of the gospel is under attack. And this second truth, that the gospel is under attack, it shouldn't scare us, but it should make us very aware of the danger of losing our hope, of going off track, of of the the centrality, the importance of the gospel in our everyday living, in our everyday thinking, in our everyday priority. We have to be aware, we have to be on guard in our hearts and our minds. Our hearts and our minds uh, is what encompasses our That was just to wake you up. It's what encompasses our functional belief system. We are going to live out what we are thinking upon and believing internally. So we have to be on guard. But today we're going to look at another key truth. Key truth number one, number three from 1 Corinthians 15 Key truth number three regarding the hope of the gospel. And over the next two weeks in verses 20 to 28, we are going to see that the hope of the gospel is unshakable. Man, this is so important to realize if the gospel is indeed under attack. If if the gates of hell are attacking the advance of the gospel, attacking the purposes of Christ... How we need to know that the gospel is unshakable. And this unshakable quality of the gospel, it's evidence to us in this passage we're going to see really from three different perspectives, all that work together. We know the hope of the gospel is unshakable because of the past, the present, and the future. Another way of saying this is that redemptive history, which is the the history of this world, the history of what God is doing in this world, it all points 
to the unshakable nature of the gospel. What is past, what is present, and as we're going to see in this passage, what is yet to come. This is our basis for hope. So we're going to, this morning, seek to rest in this true hope. We're going to seek to be actively living in faith and service to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords uh, because He is the living, reigning, resurrected Savior. And we can live in this hope. We're going to once again see that we are called as followers of Jesus to cling to what truly matters. And once again, we're going to see that the gospel is to be a hope-filled message. It is a hope-filled message that is to produce a hope-filled people. So let's pray, and we are going to look at this third reality of the hope of the gospel, that the hope of the gospel, it is unshakable. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word, I pray, God, that you would instruct our hearts in the truth. Father, there's individuals here that feel very shaken. Feel shaken because of concerns, because of circumstances, because of life issues, because of health issues, whatever the case may be, Lord. There is no doubt that there are individuals here that feel very fragile, very shakable. Lord, like a weed, uh, like, like a reed tossed in the wind. But Lord, we know that because of Christ, Lord, the very nature of Christ, Isaiah talks about a bruised reed. Jesus is so gentle, He will not break. Father, as we come to You in our neediness, in our weakness, Lord, we know that You are our strength because You are the resurrected Savior. Uh, Lord, as, as Mike said this morning, there is the but Christ has risen from the dead, the assurance that grounds our hope. It grounds our faith. So Lord, I pray that you would instruct us from your word. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to the truth of the gospel. Lord, we are helpless without you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The hope of the gospel is unshakable. We're simply looking at verses 20 to 23 um, this morning. And we're going to see that the first reason why the hope of the gospel is unshakable is because verses 20 to 23 show us that Christ has tasted death and won. Christ has not tasted death and has been lost in death. He has conquered death. I want us to read verses 20 to 23, and then we're going to unpack it. Verse 20 says, But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ 
shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, if you track the progression of this chapter, you see that Paul begins talking about the hope that believers possess in the first several verses of chapter 15. And then he talks about the content of the gospel and the evidence of the gospel that Christ has appeared to all of these people. So he starts out very broad. And then he gets a little bit narrower and he says, but there's a problem. There are those who are denying the resurrection of the the dead. And he says... Think about this logically. If this is what you're believing, then that means not even Christ has been raised from the dead. He states the problem. He begins with our hope. He states the problem. And now we are going to see from verse 20 and following, he is going to reinforce the truth, the solution to this problem. He is going to begin to unpack the doctrine of Christ. Do not let anyone ever tell you, and please don't believe this in your own mind, that doctrine, that theology is unimportant. That we're concerned with the, with the, the Christian life, but let, let's leave the doctrine to the colleges and seminaries. You can't be more wrong, because without the doctrine, we have no proper living. We are all theologians. Theology is simply truth about God. And we all have beliefs about God. The question is, are we believing the right stuff? And Paul is going to now unpack for the Corinthians, how should you be believing? Because the actions are simply an outworking of the belief. Christ has tasted death and won. The assurance that these Christians are more than conquerors, are victors, is not placed upon themselves. It's not about how good they've been doing or whether they have been meeting certain qualifications or have been been doing certain things that they think they should do. The Assurance of victory here is solely found in Christ. Verse 20 shows us that He is our guarantee of victory. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. See folks, the first thing that we need to get in our hearts and minds is the very thing that we all, I mean, we believe this, but do we really believe it in our hearts, in our emotions? That Jesus' resurrection is a reality. Did you know it's true on your good days? Did you know it's true on your bad days? Did you know that Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus is an alive, risen, reigning Savior is true in the middle of your marriage problems, in the middle of your personal struggles with sin, in the times that you don't feel like you need the Lord because everything is going good? Did you know that no matter what, Jesus' resurrection is a reality? That simple word, but in verse 20, makes all the difference. 
As Mike said, verse 19, man, if Jesus isn't raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. When the power went, out, went off, uh, um, what night was it? Friday? Um, you know, we were, we were at dinner time, and we were, uh, it was kind of family movie night. We were going to watch a movie. The power goes off, so... Um, we all went to our, our bedroom because that's the warmest room in the whole house. Um, so the kids were, were you know, so it was kind of like a refugee camp there in our, our bedroom with four kids. Um, and I, I reported the power outage. I was sure that, that it was very well known uh, in the community. But I said, well, I'll do my part and I'll put in my two cents. Um, so I signed up to receive text alerts. And, you know, I would get a text alert. It started that, um, and we need to be thankful for all these guys, by the way, uh, um, that, that go out. Uh, we saw on Facebook, one person was kind of complaining, like, what a bad, horrible night for the power to go out. And, and someone kind of, man, they did a mic drop on them. They responded and said, uh, isn't it a terrible night for those uh, line workers to have to be out there fixing it? I was like, whoa, ouch. <laughs> Uh, there, there was no response to that one. Uh, but anyway, uh, so thank you to, to, to those guys. And uh, um, um, Gary can, can, uh, can appreciate that. He's not here today, but we can extend our thanks to him. Uh, but anyway, I would get a text, and, you know, it started off by like 8 o'clock. The power should be back on, or 9 o'clock. And then I got another text, 11 o'clock. Uh, so I fell asleep. And uh, at, at around, uh, I don't know, around 10-something or whatever, it said, by Saturday at 8 p.m., no later than Saturday, 8 p.m., the power should come back on. In my mind, laying in bed, I'm like, oh, no. Pipes could get frozen. Uh, it's getting colder and colder in here. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking through all of this. Well, all of a sudden, uh, at around, a little after 11 the power comes back on. And it was like immediate relief, like, ah, oh, power. Well, this, I say all of that long story. Really, I didn't need to say all of that. But this is like the same feeling, only much greater, because this deals with our eternal souls. Verse 20 is like that, ah, oh, relief. But Christ has been raised from the dead. We're not talking about physical power here. We're talking about resurrection power, amen? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So in other words, all of the above dangers in verses 12 to 19 are no longer valid. What relief? Verse 13 and 16 says, If Christ is not raised from the dead, then there's no bodily resurrection for us. Verse 14, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then all of the preaching that, that, that we uh, hold to and that we listen to and that we proclaim is empty, it's vain. Verse 15, if, if Christ's resurrection is untrue, then we are, we are false witnesses of God. Verse 17 and 18, if Christ's resurrection is untrue, then we are left in our sinful state. We are still enemies with God. We're alienated from God in verse 19, we are left without hope. What relief, right? 
I mean, this is greater relief than, than you suddenly find an extra $10,000 in your bank account. This is so much greater. Jesus' resurrection is a reality. Are we living as if the work of Christ is indeed a reality? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And what does that next phrase say? Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, some of you may be more or less familiar with what first fruits means in the scriptures. But we know that Jesus is our guarantee of victory, first of all, because his resurrection is real, but also because Jesus' resurrection is a turning point in history. It is a turning point in history. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This word first fruits, it has its origins in the Old Testament. In fact, to truly know uh, the, the depth of the New Testament, we really need to be um, uh, studiers of the Old Testament. And that's where this term first fruits comes from. It's an Old Testament concept. So you remember when God took the children of Israel out of Egypt. And it is totally by God's hand that he delivered his people from Egypt. You think of the ten plagues. You think about when their backs are up against the, the sea. And then all of a sudden, God tells Moses to lift his rod and the sea parts. And, and they walk on dry ground. I mean, this is completely a work of God. The, the, uh, the Israelites are, are totally at God's mercy. And God tells the, the people of Israel, when I bring you into the land that I've promised you, to, to remember that the land is mine. It's not your own hand that, that you have the land. You are going to do certain things to emphasize that the land is mine. The giving of the first fruits of a harvest was one of those those things that God instituted for the people to remember where everything that they have comes from. In fact, Leviticus 23.10, it's already there for you. Um, the Lord says to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. Um, just to get some context of this passage, um, this is the, um, during one of the feasts of Israel, this would be called the Feast of First Fruits. It was the beginning of the harvest season. And specifically, they are to bring a sheaf of barley harvest. Uh, because the barley was starting, they were starting to reap a harvest. And, and the people bring as an offering the first fruits, the first collection of this barley grain. And they do this because they say, Lord, this is yours. This comes by your hand. But then also, it was an act of faith that, Lord, this is the first of what you are going to provide much more of. So this was both an act of faith 
And it was an act of dedication. The next harvest that the Israelites would experience, the Feast of Weeks, or called Pentecost, was towards the end of the harvest, but yet the beginning of the actual wheat harvest, where, where again, they were commanded to, to present the first fruits of the wheat harvest as, as, as two baked loaves of wheat bread. And they would, again, present this to the Lord in dedication and in faith that the Lord would continue the harvest of wheat. Now, when we think of this passage here in verse 20, that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, what is this saying? This is saying that Jesus is the marker. He is the first of that which much more is to come. That Jesus' resurrection is to mark a future resurrection where much more, many more individuals would be resurrected from the dead. Jesus is our assurance for that which is yet to come. He is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament first fruit offerings pointed to. In fact, put a little bit differently, Colossians 1 and verse 15 says this. He is the beginning, the firstborn here from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In other words, Jesus is the first in time and priority of that which is also to come. So his resurrection marked a turning point in history where something new is beginning. Jesus is the beginning of a new creation order, and he stands preeminent over that new creation. He is the first fruits, it says, of them who had fallen asleep. That language, fallen asleep, it has the idea of something that's temporary. That we know that those who die physically, they are asleep in the sense that their body will one day be resurrected. That this is not the end. I like what one individual says regarding Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. It will be on the screen for you. It's a really small. I'll read it to you. Basically, speaking of the first fruits, these individuals say, by way of this metaphor or this comparison, Paul underlines the link between our fate and the fate of Christ. That's so important. Christ's resurrection is not an isolated event, but guarantees something even more stupendous. Theologically, it suggests that our resurrection not wholly separate from Christ's resurrection, but earlier and later parts of the same event, with the earlier part serving as a promise and guarantee of that which is yet to come. So basically what he's saying, saying is, we are not even to dissect Christ's resurrection from our own resurrection. This is one event, as we're going to see, separated by time, but connected because we are in Christ. So we have Christ's resurrection as the first fruits. 
And then we have our resurrection. If Christ's resurrection is not real, then neither is ours. If ours is real, then Christ must be real. Folks, from birth to death, our only hope is Christ. You think of your loved ones that have passed, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a parent, a relative, a friend, I mean, even, even a child. Think of those who have undergone miscarriages and just such trying circumstances. Folks, the hope that you will see that loved one again if they are in Christ is Jesus' resurrection. That's how important it is. Easter's uh, not just one Sunday we celebrate a year. We see that every day of our lives it is dictated by the hope of the resurrection. So we know that Christ has tasted, tasted death and won because he is our guarantee of victory. It's all about him. His resurrection is real. His resurrection is a turning point in history. The new has now come. The new is not completely here, as we're going to see later in our text. We're going to be dealing um, with broad sketches of what you would call eschatology or end-time events. Uh, what has begun the last days? It is Christ's resurrection. What has begun Christ's kingdom? It is his coming to earth, breaking into history, dying and being raised from the dead where he is enthroned in heaven today. This is our hope. We are victors because Christ is the victor. But I also want to show you a second and final reason why we can rest confident in Christ's victory that he has tasted death and won. Number one, because he and he alone is our guarantee. But number two, which goes right into this idea of Christ being the first fruits, the first fruits of something new. Jesus, number two, is the new Adam. He's the new Adam. You may say, Pastor Adam, what do you mean he's the new Adam? Well, Paul's going to explain this to, uh, for us. Verse 21 and 22 say this, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So we have two different examples of two different people. And these two different people representing two very different things. Verses 21 to 22 presents for us a contrast of representatives. Adam and Christ. In fact, you even see the necessity 
for us to be rescued, for us to be victors, the necessity of Christ's incarnation or, by, or becoming a man. Literally, if you were to read this in, in the original um, Greek in the word order, it would be these two parallel, parallel ideas. For since through man death, also through man resurrection from the dead. This would have to be done by a man. But not just any man, it had to be a God-man. The old Adam, the first Adam, equals death. For as by a man came death. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Everyone that walks the face of this earth is a sinner through Adam. The, the, the fourth through sixth graders are going through our New City Catechism um, curriculum where they are learning questions and answers concerning um, doctrine. And I don't know how, how specifically this is worded, um, but, but the question can often be posed, and it's really um, necessary to think about. Are we sinners because of who we are or because of what we do? And of course, the answer is both. From the moment of conception in a mother's womb, the scripture teaches that we are born in sin. We are sinners before we ever commit the first act of sin. We are not sinners. We are not created in innocence. This is called the doctrine of original sin. Death or or sin has been passed down generation by generation starting with Adam. That's what this text is teaching us. Romans 5, this passage here, Adam is our representative. And because of Adam's sin, sin has passed to all men. Sin came into the world through that one man, not through a lot of people. And what has happened because of sin? Death has entered the scene, both spiritual death and physical death. The very thing that has been overcome by Christ, both spiritual and physical death. But this is a very important point that if we are left to ourselves, we are under the old Adam have time to talk about this in your small groups, um, but of all of the nations in our world today, think of all of the races, think of all of the languages, all of the tribes, all of the people groups, it gets staggering. I read a while ago how many people groups there are, and, and, and it's crazy. But did you know, despite all of that, All of humanity can be put into two categories. That's how simple it is. You're either under the old Adam, dead in your sin, or you're under the new Adam, 
Christ, and he has brought life. How would that change our perspectives if we started to view people as either under the old Adam or the new Adam? And it no longer became simply their personalities or their race or their what all of these different things, but it is a matter of old Adam, new Adam. Wouldn't that both bring us a missional mindset and also, I think, more of, an, of a righteously merciful mindset that, of course, people are going to think certain things because they are blinded by the wicked one. Therefore, my responsibility is to show them Christ, not simply to criticize. The old Adam represents death. But praise be to God, this story doesn't end there. You see, the new Adam, Christ, represents life. As by a man came death, by a man has also come resurrection from the dead. Romans 5.15 says it like this, But the free gift is not like the trespass, speaking of Adam's rebellion against God. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, our representative, he disobeyed, Now many die through one man's trespass. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Later in verse 18 of chapter 5, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. So one trespass has brought death to all who are under the old Adam. One act of righteousness has brought life to all that are under the new Adam. Interestingly, sometimes people say, if Adam had not disobeyed God in the garden... What would have happened? Now, Scripture doesn't give us a verse that says very plainly, um, so this is what happens, but I think Scripture makes it very clear based in passages like what we are looking at of representative headship that if Adam had obeyed, and of course, these questions are always theoretical because that was not God's sovereign plan. But if Adam had obeyed, I do not think it would be that Satan's like, okay, let's go to the next person. Let's tempt them, see if they'll disobey because eventually someone's going to flub up and I'm going to have my way. No, Adam was a representative for all humanity. All humanity figuratively speaking, was in Adam. If Adam had obeyed, humanity would have been established in relationship with God. If if Adam, which he did, failed, that has now brought death and sin upon all of us. 
But how much greater, Paul says, is the truth that the God-man, Jesus Christ, took on flesh to enter humanity to present a better way. To present a new type of humanity. Those that are a part of the new creation. No longer those who are a part of the old creation. If any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Man, the sting of sin is still death, isn't it? We still live under the bondage, not the, not the, not the uh, debilitating bondage of sin, but we still live under the effects of sin. We are still broken people that God has begun a new work in. We still taste death. We still suffer. But we are no longer characterized by the infirmities, by the weaknesses, by the sins that we struggle with. All who are a part of this new creation people are characterized, verse 22 says, by life. So as we close, I want us to look at verse 23 and I want us to look at this new creation order. You see, the new creation, as we're going to see Later in this passage, verses 24 to 28, the new creation is going to be made known at Christ's second coming. But that doesn't mean that the new creation has not already begun. We are the new creation. We are a new creation people awaiting Christ's return for Christ to finish what he has started. Many people describe this this idea as the already not yet. Already redemption has come. Already Jesus is seated on the throne. But the not yet part is the fullness of that has not yet been realized. And that is such a helpful truth to remember in every part of our Christian life. Man, when we are struggling with sin... Why can't I gain victory over this? Why is this such a struggle? Wouldn't it be so easy if if I just no longer struggled with this or that or whatever? Take heart because already we are victors. We are not chained to sin, but we still struggle because the not yet has not yet come to fullness. So we still are called to walk by faith and not by sight. But let's look at this order, verse 23. Christ has brought in this new humanity, this new creation. We have the promise of life. But Paul says in verse 23, but each in his own order. And here we see that term again. Christ, the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 
Folks, just like Colossians 1 talks about, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he should be preeminent. Christ is first. Christ is preeminent over the new creation. You know what Hebrews 12.2 says? In the midst of our struggles in the Christian life, the temptations to give up, the temptations to say, you know what, Christ is not worth it, I'm going to go back to my old way of life. Hebrews 12 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who is the source who begins our faith, and he is the one that has plotted the path, and he's the completer. It's Christ first. So the order here is Christ as the first fruits. Verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Jesus has risen from the dead. He is the first fruits, the promise of that which there is more to come. And then the word then. And then here indicates that there is a gap of time. Doesn't say how long that gap of time is. But there's a process here. Jesus raises from the dead. Then, a gap of time. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So it's Christ first. This unknown, unspecified gap of time. And then, the resurrection of the saints. Believer's resurrection. We're going to see more of this as we look at chapter 15, verses 42 to 53. You read about this, this coming in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. So where is our hope? Is our hope in ourselves? No. Is our hope in this world? No. Our hope is looking to Christ both as the first fruits and as the one who is coming again. The marker for our hope is Christ's coming. It's a Greek word, parousia. The last time that it is uh, uh, mentioned in, in the New Testament is back in Matthew 24. If you want to read more of Christ's coming, read Matthew 24. It's interesting, this word coming. In Greek and in Roman culture, this word is referred to as the official visit of an emperor or some other high-ranking official to a city. So this was, this was a, a very known coming. In fact, many times in, 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 in uh, history, when a royal official would come to a city, some of um, the, the city leaders and um, would actually go out of the city, they would meet the, the, the royal entourage, and then they would escort that entourage back into the city. Christ is coming. And who's involved in this coming? Then at his coming, 
Who looks forward to this? It is those who belong to Christ. Can I ask you this morning, do you belong to Christ? Not just in word, not just in thought. Have you given your life to King Jesus? For the forgiveness of sins, to be your rescuer. And you said, God, I am not going to march to my own drumbeat. You are the only one worth living for. It's interesting that when Paul says those who belong to Christ, they are the ones who are going to meet the Lord in the air. Many individuals point out the truth that this would have actually been a knock against the, the Corinthian believers. It would have been a, 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 not a knock in a bad sense, but it would have been an eye-opener to them. That Paul doesn't mention anything about social class. Paul doesn't mention anything about, well, are you a follower? Are you of the opinion of Paul? Are you of the opinion of Apollos? Are you under the opinion of Cephas? Because you guys are going to have first access. Doesn't say anything about that. All who belong to Christ. This would have been a wake-up call to the Corinthian believers that they need to see the unity that Christ has brought. They need to see themselves as followers of Christ all on equal footing. So as we look at this and as we close, then, or, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, Christ's resurrection, marks the beginning of this new era, the beginning of this new creation. That's already not yet. And then it says then, there's this unknown gap of time, and then we read about Christ's coming. Can I ask you? Here's the question. How are you living in the time between Christ's resurrection and return? Are you living expectantly? Are you living with hope? Are you living with the constant reminder? I can't get, let myself get too caught up in the things of this world. I can't let my heart drift. I can't let my mind be preoccupied with things that are going to pass away. Yes, I've got to deal with them. Yes, I need to be a steward. I need to make sure I have bread to put on the table. I need to make sure that I'm taking care of my body. I need to, I, I, I've been steward with, stewarded with all these things, but there's a fine line between things taking, taking priority and just being faithful. How are you living in the time between Christ's resurrection and return? According to this passage, three ways we can think about this. Number one, are you mindful of your hope? What's your hope? It's the truth of the gospel, verses 3 to 5. 
Jesus died in accordance with the scripture. He was buried, he was raised, and he, was, and he appeared to these individuals, and he's going to appear to us one day. Are you mindful of your calling as a, as a follower of Jesus? What's your calling? Look at verses 1 and 2. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Are you holding fast to this message of the gospel? I'm not just, not just talking about theologically. I'm talking about in your heart, in your life. Are you mindful of the threat to deviate? Verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? We are prone, whether it's front door tactics or back door tactics, to get our mind off Christ. All of those factors are going to go into answering this question. And the beauty of it is, no matter how we answer this question, it's always going to be we are doing it imperfectly. And our answer is that we run back to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. It's about clinging to Jesus. It's about saying, Lord, faithful are you who called me who also will do it. Lord, I am looking for to, to both will and to do of your good pleasure, knowing that it has to be you who's working within me. Folks, let us cling to the hope of the gospel as a hope-filled people.